You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 106 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Um, I'm really well, actually, Valerie. I yes. went to my brother's wedding on the weekend. Oh, oh. I did. Yes, he got nice. married. And uh, so we all trekked out to Watson's Bay and it does feel like a trek, don't you yeah. feel, to Watson's Bay? Yes. And uh, enjoyed the you know harbour views and few glasses of Prosecco and a oh, nice. lovely, lovely time was had by all. So, yeah, it was very, very good. I've had a very nice family weekend. What about you? What about me? I've just been catching up and doing a bit of laundry. It's not as exciting as um, <laughs> <laughs> drinking Prosecco. Very similar. Yeah. Watson's Bay. The reason why I was doing quite a fair bit of laundry was because I came back from overseas and you know what it's like. You unpack your bag and there's just all of this, all of these clothes that mm-hmm. really need a wash. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's what I've been doing and I've been doing a bit of reading. So it was a nice, relaxing, albeit, Laundry field weekend. Yes, and and we should apologise to our regular listeners oh, for yes. the fact that we, we had a small glitch in our scheduling crisis last week, and um, we did skip a week, but we're back. We're back. And, uh, we're excited to be back. Yes, it was a combination of a I was overseas, b you were on school holidays, and mm. c our podcast editor went on leave and we forgot. <laughs> it was like a perfect storm of podcasting nightmares, wasn't it, all in one hit? Yes, but we are back. And we oh, want yeah. to give a big shout-out to HBO872. Interesting oh. name, HBO872. It sounds like BB-8 from The Force Awakens. Oh. But anyway, HBO872 has said – I on iTunes, uh, where they left us a review. I'm currently working my way through the back catalogue of the podcast. I learned something with every episode and am really enjoying the easy friendship and rapport between Valerie and Alison. It's a delight to listen to and so interesting to hear from two successful writers plus all the interviews and extra tidbits. Great job, ladies. Aww. Thanks Thank very you. much, HB0872. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, HB0872. You see a droid on the other end, don't yeah, you? Yeah, exactly, I do. Um, much appreciated. And if you do have 30 seconds to leave us a ranking or review on iTunes, we'd be eternally grateful uh, because that really helps us in the rankings. Yes. Um, and speaking of eternally grateful, oh, I yes. do have some news that I would like to share before we go too much further. And do share. Um, if you've been, you know, with me on social media in the last couple of weeks, you're probably already aware of this, which is just 
you know, why you should follow me on Facebook and Twitter immediately. Um, but the I was very, very excited uh, earlier in April that um, the Mapmaker Chronicles, book one, was announced as being on the shortlist, one of 10 books on the shortlist for what they call the Real Awards shortlist. Um, the Real Awards uh, for shortlist forms the basis of the shortlist for all the Children's Choice Book Awards um, in New South Wales, the ACT, the Northern Territory, and Victoria. Um, and so the Mapmaker Chronicles has made the shortlist for the Yabbers, uh, which are the Victorian Awards, for the Crocs, which are the Northern Territory Awards, and for the Koalas, which are the New South Wales Children's Choice Awards. And it's very exciting. The shortlist is, honestly, I'm just overwhelmed to be on the list with um, with the likes of Andy Griffiths and yes. Tristan Banks and all sorts of other exciting people. So it's uh, it, it was an exciting day for me. Um, and as I said, if you were with me on Facebook, on Twitter, you were sharing it with me. Very exciting. That's yeah. so cool. Oh, I know. I love a bit of good news. Yeah, yeah it's good. great It's always good. Yeah. Well, shall we move on to the rest of the news of writing and publishing and blogging for this week? So much news. Let's do that. So much news. Um, I just thought I would share a link. It's from The Guardian and it's actually about Paula Hawkins who wrote The Girl on the Train, which is a huge best-selling success <sighs> and um, the, the thriller. And I just thought I would share it because what's interesting about her story is is that she, you know, she's written this huge success and it's a crime thriller, well, you know, a thriller, and um, she actually first started off writing, you know, kind of like rom-coms, like mm. chick-lit, mm. and had written her fourth chick-lit or popular women's fiction or commercial women's fiction or whatever you want to call it, book, uh, which was lighter and entertaining before she decided, you know what, I'm going to just try something a little bit darker. She says that she was always drawn to something darker. But she had gone into, um, you know, had some modicum of success in the chick lit genre and she finally gave in to the dark side and that produced The Girl on the Train. Uh, and I just wanted to highlight that because sometimes it can actually, even when you're a published author, it can take some books before you find your true voice mm. because she was sort of steered into – Chicklet, um, because she was initially, of all things, uh, a money journalist, mm. you know, writing about money. And her agent suggested that, and her debut novel was Confessions of a Reluctant Recessionista, which she wrote under the pseudonym Amy Silva. And um, yeah, she. It, it's interesting because it took her four books before she actually finally had the guts to give in to the creative urge that was in her and what resulted was a massive success. Well, it is interesting. I mean, she says that the lighter stuff she was writing before never be never came naturally. Mm. And I kind of relate to that in a, in a sort of a way in the sense that I guess I started out writing romance and um, commercial women's fiction. Mine's not published at this stage, but I started writing that because I'd come from magazines and I was that sort of age and it felt like what I should be writing. Mm. And I also, I think I had in my head and perhaps to, to do it to a degree with with her as well, as she because she was working as a personal fin, fi, finance journalist, 
she would understand markets and she would understand target audiences. And um, and that was exactly the, the, the same way I approached it. I was working for Clio. I understood the target. Well, thought I did. I actually was not that great at it. But anyway, I, I understood the target um, the, the target audience. I understood writing for a demographic. I understood the voice. But as it turned out, all of those things or that I understood never really came together in a in a fabulous sort of way. Mm. And it wasn't until I started writing for children that, like, I remember saying to somebody, I, I'd written the first book in the Mapmaker Chronicles and somebody said to me, oh, you know, you know, how did you find it? Was it really difficult? And I was like, oh, my God, no, it was the most fun I have ever had at my computer. And mm. I still feel that way about it. Like writing those children, they just feel like they pour out of me quite naturally. And I yeah. think that once you find your thing, then that's kind of what it feels like. And I wonder if it feels the same for her. I wonder if drunk girl, as she called <laughs> the girl <laughs> on the train, um, I wonder if that poured out of her in exactly the same way. Yeah, I have no doubt it does because it, mm. it did because when you are writing something that is just comes naturally to you, obviously it comes naturally to you. So. Yeah, yeah, and but you don't. You know, I mean, I, I always thought that the it, it didn't the the writing the other stuff didn't feel. It's a little bit like dating, mm. you know, in the sense that you can date people that are really, really like you feel like it's all good at the time, and it's not till you actually meet the person that you're actually supposed to be with where mm. it feels completely right. Easy. And easy, exactly. Mm. And then you look back and you go, God, what was I thinking? Yes, This exactly. is how it's supposed to be. Yeah. So if you that. feel you're trying too hard, try something else. Try something else. Date yeah. something different. Yeah, date something different. <laughs> so let's move on to another post. This is actually in the Huffington Post and I really like it. <clears throat> it's called How to Read a Publication Like Your Future Editor Wants You To. Now, Ooh. this pertains to people who are pitching magazine and newspaper ideas, whether that's to print or online online magazines or newspapers and uh, it's got five tips which I think are really useful mm. and if you are pitching your story ideas to magazines or newspapers or you know as a freelance writer then pay attention mm. number one is uh, you haven't read the publication recently it drives me bonkers when I hear people say they want to pitch to a particular publication and they haven't even read it recently like they mm. may have read it 15 years ago and I was talking to someone the other day who was convinced that the Women's Weekly was for 20-year-olds and I'm like, are you serious? Oh. No, <laughs> no, that's not right. It's younger than it used to be but it's not quite that young. <laughs> <laughs> no. Also that you haven't read enough issues or, you know, in enough articles basically in the publication also you haven't listened to the voice and tone of the writers again I was talking to someone the other day and he he sent me or he showed me what he wanted to pitch to a particular publication and I it was so I mean and the publication was very consumer oriented and I said this is not the tone and style of the publication and he said but it's the way I write mm -hmm. and I said that might be the way you write which was and he, it was very academic and full of polysyllabic words mm. throughout every single sentence. Um, and I said, but you need to write in the tone and style of the publication in this instance if you actually want them to pay attention. Oh, and I've got a tip on that too. And it's yes. something that I often tell my students in when, when I um, teach the magazine freelance writing course mm. uh, for the Australian Writers' Centre is if you read the captions – 
and the introductions to the stories carefully, as well as the stories themselves, you will see what the actual editorial team, what the tone is that they are putting on the magazine. Because it's often, that's what they're responsible for, the captions, the intros, the headlines. Read those things carefully because they are almost the crux of the voice of the magazine. It's in those captions and things, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Great tip, especially those intros. Yes. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, for sure. So anyway, we will put the link in the show notes, which you can find at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au. But uh, let's move on then to another article. This one is from a website called This Is Money. (laughs) It's a financial website. I like it already. (laughs) I like it because it talks about a lawyer. This is a lawyer in the UK who uh, had a commute of three hours. I'm sure that was there and back uh, every day. And so what he used to do on his commute was write books. And even though he had some experience in publishing some books like years ago and didn't wasn't successful, um, but in 2014 he was inspired by a friend of his who was writing his own books and putting them up available on Kindle. And so he decided to start writing his books and he had, um, he now makes over six figures. And remember this is in pounds because this guy's in the UK, over six figures, more than he ever made as a lawyer in a year. And he um, wrote six books in his first year just to, because he had those three hours on the train to get get you know get going Mm. and he's now got a very successful well career Mm. as an author not bad huh no very interesting and I, I think the other interesting thing about it is that he um he had a book he had some experience with publishing in that he had written a novel that had been published it was called The Art of Falling Apart which I actually really like mm. um it was published by Pan Books in the UK but failed to sell and mm. he found that really really difficult you know he said oh it was really fun until the book hit the shelves <laughs> and yes. a combination of it not being very good and the publisher not promoting it meant it didn't do very well and he was also of course being a lawyer knew that it makes it very difficult if you put a book or two out there that doesn't do very well, it's very hard to get traditionally published again, um, unfortunately, under that name. And so um, he stopped writing for six or seven years Mm. and then it was this experience of, you know, getting trying something different Mm. and deciding to put it up through Amazon and has has made it um, a great success for him, which is brilliant. Try, try again. He's no longer a lawyer and is author of more than 20 thrillers and has seen a million copies of his books downloaded just in, you know, the last couple of years and is now negotiating a film deal. Oh, so there you go. If you commute, make don't just sit there and listen to your iPod, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Do something useful. Make the most of it. Yes. Uh, now, just to shout out, um, thank you to uh, Sue Ann Gregg for highlighting a, a great gift idea, which I can't believe we've never mentioned on the podcast because I think this is awesome. Um, and I've known it's about it been for on some my radar. T- yes. Yeah, no, why have we not talked about it? I don't know. It, it's been on it's my like radar too. It. It's like we're keeping it to ourselves. Yes. But thank you, Sue Ann. It's uh, Spineless Classics and you'll find it at spinelessclassics.com.au. Such a good gift idea. Basically, mm. they're posters and they average, I don't know, around 70 bucks depending. Um 
and they're posters of Murder on the Orient Express or The Alchemist or The Art of War or The Hobbit, but every single word of the book is printed in teeny, teeny, tiny writing on the poster. But there's also presented graphically, yes, beautifully. (laughs) They're actually very, very beautiful. I I particularly like the Harry Potter one, Mm. and I particularly like the Hobbit one. I've actually considered getting um, both of those for my boys at at different times, but we're still renovating, so let's not go there. Um, But yes, I think they they are a a beautiful thing, and they're a lovely gift idea for the bookaholic in your life. Yes, definitely. Hmm. So. Now we have something serious to talk about, don't we? We do. And speaking of bookaholics, we do have something serious Mm. to talk about. And this is something that I think that um, all writers and aspiring writers need to be aware of. You may have heard people banging on about the Productivity Commission and its report. You may have heard people banging on about parallel importations of books and thought, oh, what is that? And your eyes glaze over. (laughs) And the the difficult thing is that it is a very, very boring subject um, that I think a lot of people uh, find it difficult to understand because of that, it kind of goes under the radar a bit. However, the Productivity Commission's report on Australia's intellectual property arrangements, see, I mean, your eyes are glazing over already, right, Um, (laughs) was handed down last week. And I think that it's really important that um, that everybody be across exactly what it is. Uh, now, I came across on the HarperCollins blog over the weekend a, an open letter from Jackie French, who is, of course, she was the Children's Laureate uh, for the last couple of years, and she is, of course, one of our most successful authors, um, talking about what impact this report will, ha- uh, will have if these things are actually taken into consideration and and pass through. Um, So she basically says uh, one of the biggest problems with the current report suggests that writers don't write for financial reasons and therefore the money that they make doesn't matter to them. And so one of the... Are they insane? What insane person wrote? No, it's in there. And one of the recommendations is that the rights to a person's work should only be valid for 15 years which means, you know, if you write your novel today, that you only own the rights to it for 15 years and after that it will go into general, you know, whatever and it's anyone ridiculous. can do what they want with it. Yeah, completely ridiculous. As she says, she, you know, has worked as an author for 25 years supporting her family and has assumed innocently that the royalties from these books would continue to support she and her husband in their old age. Mm. But now she's been told that she may only own the work for 15 years. And as she says, if I spent my time renovating houses or investing in shares, I'd own them and so would my heirs. You know, does Thomas Keneally have no moral right to Brings Larks and Heroes? Does Mem Fox no longer have a right to Possum Magic or to, you know, or she to Diary of a Wombat? Um Think about what would happen if you wrote a successful book and then at the end of those 15 years you didn't own it anymore. It's it's really important that you think about the, the ramifications of the recommendations of this report. Um, the other thing, of course, is the, the it does recommend that parallel importations of books be allowed. And this is a really complicated subject that I think that it's important for people to, to read up on. But yeah. basically the way it works at the moment is that Australian publishers – uh, can buy the Australian rights to big bestsellers from overseas. So your Harry Potters, your Robert the Galbraith novels, um, mm. um, you know, Girl on the Train, etc. Mm. Um, so they are, that they own the rights of them in this market. Booksellers have to buy them through these publishers, which supports investment in local authors. 
And that's, I think, the, the key to the whole thing. The Productivity Commission is saying that it's going to make books cheaper, which is not necessarily the case because New Zealand has has taken this on board nearly 20 years ago and books there are now more expensive than they are here and their publishing industry has crashed as a result. Um, so think about the fact that the if the Australian publishers own own the rights to large blockbusters here in Australia, they they it helps them to be profitable businesses and therefore allows them to actually directly invest into Australian writing. If you want to be an Australian author, it's very important that you allow um, that you read up on this and you know put together a submission if you are unhappy with what they are suggesting, which frankly I think you probably should be. And anyone can make a submission. <clears throat> anyone so, can make a yeah. submission. So we'll put a, a link in the show notes to Jackie French's letter so that you can have a look through that. And mm-hmm. I will also put a link in the show notes through to uh, the Productivity Commission and where you can put your submission if you want to. And we encourage you to make a submission even if you are not an Australian author because you might want to be an Australian author one day. And that's that's, right. that's not just for literary works, but you might write a non-fiction book or, mm. or whatever. So even if you're not currently an Australian author, this is this is just insanity. Mm. Um, and if you want to highlight to the Productivity Commission that they are insane, mm. uh, and then, yeah, make a submission. And one of the things that um, Jackie French points out in her open letter is she says, will Malcolm Turnbull give away his investments when he has owned them for 15 years? Mm. I think not. I think not. Yes. Mm. The government isn't suddenly going to say, okay, they don't belong to you anymore. So, uh, yes, very, very important topic. Let's move on to something a little bit um, brighter, which is our giveaway for the week. Oh, that is brighter. Yes, definitely. We've got a mammoth giveaway this week. Mammoth in time for Mother's Day. So definitely enter because you can win not just one but eight awesome books that we're sure your mum would love if you wanted to give it to her. You might want to keep some for yourself. We won't tell her if you do. But basically there's eight books and they include The War Bride, which is the awesome book by Pamela Hart, Lucky Dog by Sarah Boston, The Choice by Nicholas Sparks, A Girl's Best Friend by Lindsay Kelk, who we've had on the podcast as well, The Japanese Lover by Isabel Allende, The Callahan Split by Lisa Heidke, as well as It Started With a Kiss, and Under Italian Skies by Nikki Pellegrino, who we've also had on the podcast. So you can win all eight books if you enter before Monday the 9th of May at writerscentercomau slash win. And if you are listening to this podcast in the future, don't worry. If you go to that URL, writerscentercomau slash win, you have a chance to win some other book. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you'd like to get paid to see the world, a popular five-week course in travel writing will show you how. From Dubai to Dubbo, learn the steps to bringing destinations to life, as well as how to research and plan your itineraries and exactly what you need to do to approach a travel editor so they will publish your article. All this with a few hours of study each week. You'll enjoy the convenience of online learning and have your very own tutor to provide personal feedback on your writing and answer your questions. Find out more at writerscentercomau slash travel writing course. All right, so, Al, 
I have da, 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 a word of the week for you. Ooh. Yes. Of course you do. Are you ready? <sighs> Wait a minute. Just let me prepare myself. <laughs> <laughs> Now you you probably I'm pretty you probably know what this word is, a logger file, L O G O, file P H I L E, a logger file. All I can see is like a hipster with a beard in a lumberjack shirt and a pair of Timberland boots, and I'm assuming that that's not right. <laughs> or it could, in fact, if I pronounced it logo file, a lover of logos could. It could be a lover of logos, <laughs> but in fact, it's not. Okay. A logger file is a lover of words. Woohoo! Yes, it comes from the Greek word logos, meaning speech, and file or possibly in Greek it was phile or something, meaning friend or lover. And uh, I would, it would be safe to say I'm a logophile. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I reckon, yeah, I wouldn't put it this way. I wouldn't back you against that one. No. <laughs> but did you know that someone who is obsessively interested in words, and I don't think I would call myself obsessed, but someone who is, is obsessively interested in words is actually a logomaniac. I don't know, Val. I reckon you could be a logomaniac. <laughs> what do you think, <laughs> podcast listeners? Would you think she was a logomaniac? Oh, please let us know. Please let us know. Please let us know. But, yes, anyway, let's move on then. Word of the week is done to who is our writer in residence this week. Oh, this week I had the pleasure, the absolute pleasure of interviewing the wonderful Natasha Lester, who of course is a a presenter at the Australian Writers' Centre and uh, one of my uh, many friends over there, my writing friends in WA. There's something about the water in Western Australia, I think, that produces lots of writers. I know. Um, And models. Models, interestingly. Oh, well, Natasha could have been a model. Like she's got that look about it. Did you see her? So anyway... There's a whole lot of stories involved around that. But she um, she launched her new book last week called A Kiss from Mr. Fitzgerald and the photos from her book launch, she looked amazingly glamorous. Oh, yes. um, but we talked about the book and we talked about lots of different things. We talked about, you know, the fact that uh, we both share the the joy of writing around children. So we had a little chat about that. <laughs> and, um, yeah, we talked about lots of things. But, it, yes, it's very exciting. The book has been, you know, extremely well received and I think it's going to do really good things for us. So here's Natasha. Um, having a chat about writing and a kiss from Mr Fitzgerald. Natasha Lester is the Australian author of three novels, contemporary novels If I Should Lose You and What Is Left Over After and A Kiss from Mr Fitzgerald, an historical novel published this month. She is also a teacher of creative writing, including courses for the Australian Writers' Centre, a public speaker and a mother of three. So quite busy, Natasha. Thank you very much for fitting us in today. Thank you, Alison. I'm a regular listener of the podcast, so it's very nice to be the writer in residence today. Oh, there you go. Well, thank you very much for listening. (laughs) All right. Now, perhaps we could start with the early days of your writing career. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of your journey to the publication of your first novel? Sure. Um, Well, casting my mind back all those years. So I um, used to work in marketing and uh, I was over in Melbourne working for L'Oreal Paris as the marketing manager for Maybelline Cosmetics, um, which was lots of fun Mm. and a great job. And I had lots of lipstick, more than you could possibly ever use. Um, But my husband had come over to Melbourne for my work. And so 
needed to come back to Perth for his work, so it was only fair that I kind of followed him back to Perth, which is where we're both from. And so I had to quit my fabulous job and I knew in my heart that I probably wouldn't find anything quite like that in Perth and that I'd kind of been given a chance to do something else rather than, you know, the marketing work I'd been doing for more than 10 years. I'd always wanted to do something around writing, but back when I left uni, which was a long time ago, writing courses didn't exist. You could be a journalist and that was it. And I always knew that I didn't want to be a journalist. So... I kind of thought, well, if I don't do something with this chance now, I'm suddenly, I've had to quit my job, I'm unemployed, I probably never will. So I thought I might go back to university and do some a writing degree because now writing degrees existed and just find out two things, I suppose. Firstly, whether I actually liked it because mm. it's one thing to think that you would like to write and another thing to actually know that you do. Mm. And I also wanted to find out, you know, whether I was any good at it because I might have been terrible, who knows. <laughs> Um, so I went back and I started off doing a, a postgraduate um, diploma in creative writing and, and I loved that. Um, and I wrote a few things during that degree which I sent out to journals and they were, in fact, the very first thing I ever sent out, which was a poem that I'd written for an assignment, my tutor had encouraged me to submit it somewhere and I did and it was accepted and I remember thinking, wow, my God, I'm sure it's not always going to be this easy but how fabulous that the first thing I sent out somewhere was actually published. It was a bit of a boost so Mm. that was really nice Um, and I think that's the good thing about doing it, you know, learning, going back to university and, and getting some confidence that way. So because I really enjoyed it, I decided to keep going and to do a master's of creative writing. And as part of that, your thesis is primarily a novel that you write. And it was a fabulous way to write a first book because I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. Um, You know, I'm not a big plotter, so I had this vague idea based on that initial poem that I had had published. Um, And, you know, so I had a supervisor who the whole time was saying to me, just keep writing. All you have to do is keep writing, which was probably the best advice I've ever been given. Mm. So I did. I kept writing. I persevered. I wrote um, this book. Um, I finished my master's. I was awarded a degree. And then I started submitting this manuscript off out into the world to agents and publishers. And um, that was a um, bracing experience, to say the least. (laughs) I like that word, bracing, yes. Um, It's where you learn to deal with rejection um, right from the outset. And I think that what I did there is I had a big list of all the people I was going to um, submit my manuscript to. And I like lists. I'm a very list-oriented person and a list is good because it means that if somebody says no, you've got a next name on the list. You know, Mm. you don't just stop there. So I kept working my way through this list. And again, little things happened that kept my spirits up, I suppose. I got lots of personalised emails and letters from agents saying, you know, we love this about the book. Um, It won't fit our list because of this, this and this. So I knew there was something in there that was working but it just wasn't getting across the line Mm -hmm. and around the same time I submitted it to the Australian Vogels Award because at that time I was under 35 which I'm sadly not anymore (laughs) Um, and it got long listed for that which was great and as part of that long listing the judges sent me about a three or four page report kind of like a manuscript assessment Mm. again telling me about all the things that they liked about the manuscript um, and all the things that they felt that if I wanted to, I could work on more to improve it. 
So that was just gold. It was fabulous, you know, feedback from these other writers who were the judges, plus feedback from these agents. I I pulled it all together and I rewrote the book entirely. I changed point of view. I changed tense, which are two things I don't recommend doing because it takes forever and it's really fiddly. But I basically, I put this end of the book at the start of the book and the start of the book at the end and I just chopped and changed the whole thing. And With it like that, I submitted it to the Tag Hungerford Award, which is a West Australian prize for an unpublished manuscript. I think each state has a similar kind of thing. Yes. Um, And so I sent that off um, without really any high hopes because I remember on the day I took it down to the post office, this manuscript that you had to mail in an envelope, and I was about 36 weeks pregnant with baby number two, (laughs) and I had my not-quite-two-year-old with me. And I was, you know, huge, enormous, hot. It was like February and I was just in the post office, not paying attention, looked down and realised my not quite two-year-old had pulled the manuscript out of the bottom of my (gasps) pram and was literally throwing pages of it around the post office. I'm like, oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, no. So I had a a (laughs) hysterical fit. (laughs) gathered up the pages, jammed it back in the envelope and was thinking, oh, my God, it's going to be a miracle if it gets there in the right order, let alone if it actually, you know, goes anywhere. So anyway, months later, because it was like an eight or nine-month judging process, I finally got this email with the subject line tag, Hungerford Award. And, of course, if it's an email, you think, well, it can't possibly be anything good because surely they would ring if, you know, anything good had happened. So I didn't read the email at the time. I think one of the the baby was crying and so I was off getting her out of bed. And hours later I sat down and read this email and realised that, you know, the award, the shortlist had been announced and my name was on the shortlist. I was like, oh, my God, that's fantastic. So, again, many more months later they had the award ceremony and – I went along thinking, you know, I'm not going to win because another friend of mine who in fact won the Vogels Award had told me that she'd been telephoned before the award and been told that she'd won because they wanted her to have a speech prepared. So I assumed this was how all awards ceremonies must work and if I'd won, they would have rung me Um, and I hadn't got a phone call. So I went along on the night thinking, oh, no, another rejection. What am I going to do? I'm pretty much at the bottom of my list Um, but they opened the winner's envelope and lo and behold read my name, which was pretty much the most exciting moment of my entire life. (laughs) Um, And so winning the award got me a publishing contract. That was part of, there was some prize money and a publishing contract. And it's the publishing contract that is the, that is the, what you want, the best thing. So I knew from then that that book was going to be published and that was my first book, What Is Left Over After. So it was basically this thing that had started as a thesis for a master's degree, had been through many, many rewrites and, you know, finally um, made it onto the shelf in 2010. Wow. How exciting. Well, that's quite the story. I like the post office detail. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) It's a stories, but, you know, (laughs) that's how it happened. (laughs) All right. So you followed up What Is Left Over After with another contemporary novel, If I Should Lose You, Um, and now you've switched gears slightly with A Kiss from Mr Fitzgerald, which is, you know, set in the US in the 1920s. How? How and why did that happen? Um, that's another long story. <laughs> I have no short stories. <laughs> this is why I write historical fiction because they're big, long stories. 120,000 words later, we're still yeah, here. Yeah, I know. I'm not very good at concise. <laughs> um, well, so I wrote, I had um, What Is Left Over After and If I Should Lose You published and then I sat down to write a third book um, which was in the same kind of vein. It was contemporary women's fiction, um, tackling sort of issues. It was issues-based fiction. Mm-hmm. And 
I wrote that book and I basically hated every single moment of the writing. And yeah, so it was not fun. And I remember thinking the whole time, surely it wasn't like this for the first two books. I don't remember it being this bad, but also convincing myself that it must have been and I'd just forgotten because, you know, I'd had like three babies and I was clearly, you know, not of, not of sound mind when I was writing those other books. Um, and, but, and, you know, because everyone says writing is hard, so I was saying to myself, well, this is hard, this is writing, you know, that's what it's like. But I knew in my heart that something wasn't right mm. and I didn't know it at the time, but looking back on it now, I know it was because I was writing what I thought I should write Mm. rather than what I had wanted to write. Um, I think because I had written my first book at university, you know, the natural focus when you're writing at university is to go down that more literary path. I think nowadays there's a lot more commercial fiction coming out of universities, which is great, but at that time there wasn't quite so much. And so I just travelled that road without really thinking, you know, is that the right road for me? I mean, I loved reading literary fiction too. So it wasn't as if I was, you know, pretending to do something that I couldn't really do. Um, But so I wrote this third book and I submitted it to my then agent saying, look, something's not right with this book. I, it's not working, but I don't know what it is. And she came back to me after a long time, which is never good if it's a long time. Mm. And she basically said to me, yep, it's not working. And, you know, if there are three words you never want to hear from your agent, those are the three words. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, So it was a big, again, big moment of decision-making for me um, where I basically sort of sat for a month and contemplated what I was going to do. Um, And it was pretty hard to sort of pick myself back up knowing I'd written this book that was a failure, basically, mm. and to say, well, what am I going to do now? And so for some reason, still unknown to me, I pulled together some very vague ideas that I'd had about a historical novel, and I sat down and I started writing that book. And it was the complete opposite experience to that third book. It was the most amazing, joyful, wonderful experience. I loved every second of writing that book, which was A Kiss from Mr Fitzgerald. Mm-hmm. Um, but also at the same time, there was this constant, constant voice in the back of my mind saying, what are you doing? This is never going to be published. This is so completely bizarre that you would now write this historical novel. You know, you're, you're never going to have another book published in your entire life. But... I think one of the things that you do eventually learn as a writer is that those nasty voices will always be in your head and you have to write on anyway, which is what I did. Um, And so, um, yes, so basically in a succinct nutshell, I put together... (laughs) To summarise. I know, to summarise, some loose ideas I'd had about this historical novel and I just sat down and wrote it um, with um, no real um, knowledge as to whether it would eventually go anywhere. Um, okay. Yeah. So w- what did you find most challenging about writing historical fiction? Like as, you know, it, it's a it's a different um, genre. You're yes. sort of breaching in new uh, new ground, I said, breaking new ground for yourself. So what, what did you find most challenging about it? Well, the good thing was that mostly, mostly nothing. Mostly it all just uh, fell very seamlessly into place and 
I mean, I, I've always loved history. I still vividly remember sitting in Year 12 history classes and, and learning about the 1920s in America, which is where I set this book and just thinking, wow, that's a place I would have loved to have been alive in at a, a time. Mm. So the research and all of that was fabulously fun. I love sitting in a dusty archive and looking through stuff. So, uh, And the plot um, was came to me very easily, much more easily than it normally does. And I would say that probably the most challenging thing was um, the, getting the main character right and having her be um, sort of instantly likeable and someone who the reader was on side with right from the outset. Mm. Um, I mean, I know from looking at Goodreads reviews of my first two books, which is something a writer should probably never do. No. Um, <laughs> no. You want to be scarred for life is that some people didn't always like the main characters in my first two books, which I totally understand because they were sort of grey characters. They definitely did some things that were, um, I thought, understandable in the context of what was happening in their lives, but maybe that didn't always make them likeable people. And right. so I knew for this book that it was going to be a big commercial work of historical fiction. Character likability was absolutely crucial and I had to get that right. And so I spent a lot of time... Um, in the manuscript, working on that. And even in the structural editing phase, I was still working on areas. Evie has a sister, Viola, who um, she butts heads with occasionally throughout the book. And I had probably had her butt her head a little bit too hard against Viola at <laughs> certain points in time. My lovely publisher pointed out and I needed to rein things like that back in. So, yeah, that was my challenge. Okay. What about, I mean, you said you really enjoyed your time in the Dusty Archives. Do you think that there's a very real possibility of over-researching when you're writing historical fiction? I mean, did you have to pull yourself back at times? How did you do that? Um, well, I'm a, I like to write the first draft without doing very much research. Mm. And I actually think that was one of the things that destroyed that failed third manuscript that I mentioned. Um, I had started writing it as a PhD and that required me to do quite a bit of research up front. And so I had researched first and written later, which for me doesn't work. Mm. So I wrote the first draft of A Kiss from Mr Fitzgerald without doing very much research at all, just uh, reading a few non-fiction books about uh, daily life in the 1920s, you know, mm. things like, um, you know, were what kind of small electrical appliances were invented back then? Could you use a toaster or a vacuum or, or whatever? So mm. I did a little bit of research around that, but the large bulk of the research, um, because Evie is um, trying to get into medical school to be one of the first women um, accepted into medical school and to become one of the first female obstetricians in New York City. So there was a lot of medical detail that I needed, but I didn't do a lot of that until after I had the first draft because the first draft for me is that discovery draft of finding the story. Right. I actually think that's really a great way to go about historical research because it means that you already have the story in place before you go and do the research. And so the first draft acts as like a, a research blueprint I suppose. Mm. I know where the gaps are and what research I need to do to fill those gaps. Mm. So I only research those things. Mm. Um, I don't, I can't over research because I, I know I don't need to go beyond filling in those gaps in the manuscript. Right. So, so you just kind of go, as you're writing, you're just putting in brackets, insert historical exactly. detail here. Yes, yes that's right. <laughs> Which is what Excellent. I do. Yes. yes. <laughs> Stuff needs to go here. Yes. Insert something about map making here. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, so your writing process then is, as you say, discovery. So you're not a massive plotter? 
No, I'm not a massive plotter. Um, I, I often wish that I was because I think it would save a lot of rewriting and, and also a lot of that uh, nervous tension of getting, you know, three quarters of the way through the book, which I do for all of my books and not knowing how it's going to end, which mm. is quite stressful. But I also know now that that's how it always is and uh, the ending always presents itself. I just have to sit back and wait for that to happen. So, no, I am... I've got to say I, I did. I have tried to plot a little bit more for my next book, which is coming out in 2017, and I probably will try to do even more on the next one I sit down and start working on um, just because uh, as I'm writing more historical novels, the, the plot lines are starting to get a little bit more complicated and I think it, it would be good to be able to plot, but whether I can actually do that effectively or not, I'm still to find out. Mm, well, we shall follow your progress with interest because you do bro- blog regularly about writing and publishing and your process and how things are going and um, which is always highly entertaining and very pinnable because you are the queen of Pinterest uh, for, of Australian authors from what I can see there is so much going on with your Pinterest stuff but when did you start doing that like when did you start your blog and all of those sorts of things and why did you start? I started writing my blog in about, I think it was March 2010. So my first book I knew was coming out in September 2010. And so six months before that, I thought, right, you know, I'm from a marketing background. Um, I, I know this stuff, so I need to get out there and do some marketing because I knew my first book was being published with a small press. Small presses have limited marketing budgets, and so a lot of the onus for that would fall on me. So I embarked on this world of blogging, which I really knew very little about, um, and it was a wonderful process of discovery. And I love blogging because I get to write about things that I wouldn't otherwise be able to write about. Mm. And I think as a writer, the more different kinds of writing you can do the better writer you become so from that perspective just purely from a writing perspective it was great but it also you know just allowed me to make contact with people which is one of the things I love and so back then yeah I set up my blog I set up Facebook and that was what I really focused on for those first couple of years before um, you know finally being dragged into the Twitter fold uh, sort of (laughs) quite quite late actually because I was terrified of it (laughs) Um, you know and then obviously as you say venturing into Pinterest and things like that which I quite love doing because you know they're a bit of fun playing around with visuals so so yeah it was it's been a gradual process I started with two things really worked out how to do those things um you know regularly and reasonably well before I then started playing around with other things as well what do you think uh, you know other steps in that process that have worked best for you like are there I mean I know all authors are different and different things work best for for different people but what's what do you think's worked best for you from the perspective of raising your profile and you know uh, making people aware of your books and your writing yeah I think one of the most valuable things and I think it gets a little bit underrated in the social media era is face-to-face contact oh yeah yeah I think it's the the one thing, if you're going to do one thing, it's to get out there, to get in front of people, to do author talks, to go to libraries and do talks, to do workshops, to mm. teach, to do all of those things. Because my most loyal fans are the people who I've taught at a course or have seen me speak somewhere and we've had a personal kind of contact or connection. Yeah. 
I just think you can't do enough of that. And and these are people who go out there off their own bat and talk about my books and share my blogs without me having to ask for anything. And it's the most wonderful, amazing word of mouth publicity. And it's also just a great connection to, to mm. be able to um, speak to readers like that and other writers like that. So, you know, if you can get out, even just going to writers festivals and going to conferences, I mean, I, this is another probably relatively long story, but I'll try and pull it. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, a long story. Natasha, you surprised me. I know. But like back in, it must have been 2008 or nine. It was a long time ago. I was just at the Perth Writers Festival prior to any books being published, sitting in the audience next to this other young woman about my age. And we struck up a conversation and, you know, we got along really well. We both like we're into writing and, and books and her name is Sarah Foster, and Sarah Foster has just published her fourth book, mm. um, All That Is Lost Between Us, which is fabulous. And so literally just from sitting down next to each other at a writers' festival and having a conversation, we became friends from that, and we mm. have been able to be supporters of one another through our writing journeys, and that has been wonderful. And mm. if I hadn't have just been the kind of person who goes along to things to learn and to find out, then I would have missed the opportunity to have, A, that friendship, and B, that writing connection who she's been invaluable to me as a, a mentor, a friend, a support, a connection. So it's been great. Uh, I, I completely agree with you and I've always been a big advocate for talking to the people next to you at these yes. kinds of things because I, I've, I'm, I'm in exactly the same boat. I've met some of my best writing friends, you know, ever yep. just by sitting next to them and yep. making some snide remark at a writer's yep. festival. <laughs> Not that I ever make snide remarks. It must have been them making the snide remark. No, it's not my thing at all. Um, All right. So the other thing I noticed that you do use a bit within your platform, and which does make you stand out a little bit, the only other person I can think that does this on a regular basis is Tristan Banks, the children's author. But you use video quite a bit um, with your author interviews and your book chat. Why... Why? I mean, you know, for someone like me who's like video, oh god, no, I'm hiding. Why? Do you, why did you start? Dragging you in front oh. of the video screen once upon a time. I know we talked about fitting writing into our lives. I was sitting yes. there the whole time, just thinking, I can't believe we have to do. This. Why can't we just talk to each other? Anyway, um, so why did you start doing that? And you know, you know, have you got any tips for people who might be considering it? I suppose it comes back to that whole face to face thing again. Mm. Um, you know, trying to replicate the connection that you can make with people when you are face-to-face in front of them. And, I mean, as you can probably tell, I quite like to chat. Mm. No, really? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So sitting down and chatting in front of a video, like I actually find that quite fun. Um, You know, I like, back when I was working at L'Oreal, you know, it wasn't uncommon for us to have to get up in front of a crowd of 300 or 400 people, all of our sales reps, and you know, hype them up about our new products coming up. So I was quite used to getting up in front of people and and talking and I enjoy doing it. So video just seemed a natural progression of that for me. Also, you know, you spend so much time sitting, you know, alone in front of your desk typing on your keyboard that, again, video just feels like a nice way to get out in the world, albeit in a virtual way. Um, So, yeah, if I had any tips for people, it would be don't be scared of it. It's actually more fun than you think. (laughs) And just be, you know, be yourself. Like I, I watch back videos of myself and my hands are flying around all over the place because that's just how I am. I know standing in front of a crowd of people, my hands are always flying around and probably, you know, if I was going to go to media training and, you know, be all professional about it, I would have them fold in my lap and be a little <laughs> bit more <laughs> formal. But that's just not me and not who I am. So, yeah, I think you have to just 
get in front of the video camera and, and be your normal self and that will come across to people and hopefully they will respond to that. Right, yes. Well, I'll <laughs> think, I might just think about that for a little bit longer. Yes, yeah. That's all right. um, now, the other thing I've been thinking about for a while and you keep telling me that I need to stop thinking about it and do something about it is that you are a proud and dedicated convert to Scrivener. Oh, yes. And in, ha- in fact, have produced an on-demand course for the Australian Writers' Centre to convert others. I feel like it's yeah. some kind of cult, but anyway. Absolutely. I'm converting the world one writer at a time. <laughs> and you're um, next. Oh, yeah, right. Okay, keep working on that. It's a bit like the video thing. Yeah. Um, so what are the features, you know, why are you such a, um, such a preacher for it, I guess? Is it, like, what are the features that you like best about it? Um, When I sat down to write A Kiss from Mr Fitzgerald, because I knew it was going to be a much longer book, my first two books were relatively short, they were about 65,000 words, whereas A Kiss from Mr Fitzgerald is like 110 or 115, I knew I needed a way to manage that book more effectively than I had in the past. Mm. And writing in one long continuous word document did not seem to me to be the most effective way to do it. When I go out and teach writing, I always uh, talk to students about you know, at the start of the writing process, um, like Anne Lamott says in her book, Bird by Bird, you just have to sit down and write one scene at a time. You don't have to be able to see any further than that one individual scene. And so to be able to write with a program that facilitated you being able to write individual scenes just seemed to be a logical thing to do. And when I discovered Scrivener and realised that that was the whole basis of the program, that you sit down and you write individual scenes and then you can move them around and collate them and order them later, I thought, wow, that is just perfect. It it fits in exactly with what I've been teaching and and the way I've been writing for all of this time. So um, I suppose the number one thing I love is that ability to to make your book into discrete scenes, um, separate documents for each scene. I love that you can then drag and move those around. So if you're a, if you're the kind of writer like I am who tends to not know the story and will therefore be writing a little bit out of order and all over the place, um, I'm able to just drag and move things around and, and see how the book could look in any number of different ways. Um, mm. The colour coding in Scrivener is another thing that I love, being able to easily identify in the binder because things are coloured in different ways. Um, The different parts of your book, um, like I always colour code my subplots, the love story subplot, for instance, I need to know uh, how often that subplot comes into play. And so being able to make that a a different and discrete colour allows me to see if there's been too many gaps in that. What colour do you choose for your love love subplot? Just out of interest, red, pink? No, do you know it's yellow and I don't know why. (laughs) There's no logical reason for that. (laughs) But maybe I will go back and make it pink or red now that you've suggested that. (laughs) That That would be quite fun. The love. (laughs) Yeah, so that's what I love about Scrivener. They're my things, that my top things. And also the ability to have all your research documents in the one place. You you save them all and keep them all in that one document with your manuscript so they're right there whenever you need them. Okay. You do make it sound very attractive, particularly colour coding, you know, at least. Yes. Can, but I would probably, I could spend days just changing the colours and <laughs> trying to decide if they were the right colours. That's a, It's like procrasty colouring. Yes. Excellent. All right. So um, now have you always had an agent? Like once you had that first manuscript, did you get – at what point – because you said you had an agent um, yep. for the first couple and I know that you then had a change of agent with the 
third mm-hmm. book is that correct yeah, so right. where where did you get your first where did your first agent come into play like given that you had a publishing contract as part of your prize sure what how what was the story with that so I didn't have an agent for my first book because mm-hmm. as you say I did have this publishing contract and I had sent that book out to all the agents who were accepting at that time and they had all rejected it sadly um but as I say some of them had rejected it very nicely by sending me feedback and and one of those agents had sent me a a lovely letter saying you know the book opened with the best opening line she'd read in in ages and she loved a lot of things about it but she'd taken on an author with a book with a similar theme at that time and so that's why she was rejecting it so with book number two, I thought, well, I'm going to go back to her because there was obviously something that she liked about my first book. Maybe she'll like the second book. So I went back to her, reminded her about the fact that I had submitted my first book to her, reminded her what she'd said. I'd also subsequently been up to a writers' festival where I'd met another writer who had said, mention my name when you approach this agent because, you know, I've read your book and I think that, you know, I know her. And so I had a contact as well. So put all those things in my email and um, she got back to me really quickly and um, became my agent for my second book, which was great. And um, it was only when I sat down to write A Kiss from Mr Fitzgerald that I realised I was writing way out of my usual genre and that this book was going to be a very different kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I felt that probably I needed a a different agent, someone who was more in the commercial sphere than in the literary sphere. So um, I kind of knew that even though really it was a crazy thing to do to change genres, to change agents and to change publishers because I also <laughs> wanted to do that. All three things at once, let's not do anything by halves. No. Um, even though it was crazy, that was what I wanted to do. So right. I wrote the book and luckily, you know, again, this is where all this author platform stuff comes into play. As I was writing A Kiss from Mr Fitzgerald, um, I received an email from another agent who basically said to me, you know, what are you working on now? Do you have an agent uh, would you be interested in chatting? And after I had picked myself up from the floor, because like, when do you get an agent, an email really? from an agent? And then I spent like half an hour Googling and looking up her email address to make sure it wasn't some kind of hoax email. Because <laughs> I could not <laughs> believe that this would actually have happened to me. After I realized that it was genuine and legitimate, I, um, I realized that yes, she was actually the perfect agent for me. So, um, so we, we talked once I'd finished the manuscript, I sent it off to her. Luckily, she loved it and she took me on and, um, you know, she's just been so fabulous. I can't rave highly enough about Jacinda Damaso. So you like to ha- you're obviously an author that likes to have an agent because not all authors yes. do. Um, what is it about having an agent that you like? Well, firstly, from having an unagented contract for my first book to having agented contracts for my second and third books, I can tell you you get a much better deal when you have an agent. Um, So that's number one. Also, secondly, I actually quite like getting editorial feedback and advice. Mm. I know that I have a lot to learn and that my uh, drafts are, are far from perfect. And Jacinta's fabulous because she will sit down and read the whole thing and she will give you back detailed editorial notes, which she did for a kiss from Mr. Fitzgerald, suggesting some reasonably large changes, which, um, you know, at the time seemed daunting, but also it was like, this is what I have to do to get this book published. I have to make these changes. So it was, you know, sit back down and rewrite it all over again, um, which I did. And so I love that editorial feedback. I mean, just to, as an example, um, with a kiss from Mr. Fitzgerald, you know, there are so many different rights attached to the book that mm. 
if you don't know about all of those rights, then you don't have the opportunity to fully exercise and capitalise on those rights, Mm. audio rights being one of those things. And it never occurred to me that anyone would make an audio book out of A Kiss from Mr Fitzgerald because none of my books had been made into audio books in the past. But it was Jacinta who said, I think we can sell the audio rights separately and get you another advance and a higher royalty rate on the audio book. And she went off and did that. I would never have known to do that by Mm. myself, nor Mm. been able to strike the deal that she was able to strike. So agents, I believe, more than pay for themselves in the fact that they will get you a much better deal. Okay. All right. So um, do you consider yourself to be a full-time writer? Like what does a typical day look like for you? Um, Yeah, I do spend most of my days, I mean, full days, uh, like that would be a dream. (laughs) (laughs) I'm usually at my desk by just about nine o'clock by the time I drop all three kids off at school. And then I leave my desk at about half past two um, to go and get the kids from school. And I try to have as much of that time between nine and 2.30 on writing as possible. But I do always get away from my desk for an hour or so every day to swim, walk or go to yoga. Because Mm -hmm. like you, I'm a big believer in the active meditation. And I get Mm. so many of my ideas when I'm swimming laps or walking or supposedly meditating at yoga, but clearly thinking about my book instead. Clearly. Um, So yeah, basically that's my days. But I, and then I do a second round at night where I sit down at 7.30 after the kids are in bed and nighttime is all about um, the administrative side of things. So planning new courses because I do a lot of teaching, which I love doing and, you know, is is a great source of income as a writer because you need to have something else apart Mm. from just books. Mm. Um, I do my blogging, my social media, um, you know, catching up on all the emails that need to be responded to at the moment. Obviously, there's loads of publicity stuff that I need to do for A Kiss from Mr Fitzgerald. So responding to all those interview requests. So that's my kind of nighttime work. So I'll sit down and do at least another two hours, sometimes more, every evening. Um, Wow. Yeah, that's how I split my day out. So it's writing during the day, everything else at night. Fair. So and then, I, I often do it the other way around. I'll do, do everything you? else. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and wait for that, you know, deep quiet of the night yes, when they all go Yeah. Mm. Well, I've actually just started getting up at half past five in the morning. Oh, um, stop. I know. Right which, <laughs> it's, but it's, it's so great. And I thought that I would probably do it for two days and then give up. But mm. I have, I'm going, I've done it for like only a week, so I'm not totally amazing at it yet. But I'm going to keep going because it's, a, it's only half an hour, 5.30 to 6. And 6 is when I have to really get going and make school lunches and, you know, breakfasts and stuff. But that half an hour of writing time, I get so much done. And it means that when I sit back down at 9 o'clock to pick the writing back up, I'm already in the zone and I don't have to get in the zone. Mm. So, yeah. That makes sense. Good. Yeah. All right, well, let's finish off with our fabulous top three tips for aspiring writers. And I know you because you are like a Girl Scout. You are totally prepared for this. So Absolutely. what have you got? Um, because I do listen every week. I know, I, I know I have to have this organised. So I have three tips written down, no less. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so my first one, which I actually blogged about back in January, um, is to write anyway. You know, we are all capable of coming up with so many excuses to stop us from writing, but if we just sit down and write anyway, then that's how we get a book written. You know, it doesn't matter if we're tired or if we're busy or if we're not feeling well or if we think we don't have the time or if we think writing is rubbish, which we all often do. If we just sit down and, and keep writing on anyway, regardless of all of those thoughts, procrastinations, excuses, then we will eventually get a book written. So that's my number one piece of advice for anybody. Um, 
which as I say, I've written an entire blog post about it. So if you need more explication, <laughs> head off to my website. <laughs> but I think That's those Natasha two Lester.com.au. <laughs> That's right. But I think those two words are pretty self-explanatory. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, which I guess we've already touched on a little bit, is to make connections with people as much as you can. So go to, you know, it always amazes me um, when I'm teaching writing and, you know, the Perth Writers Festival is coming up and I say, so who's going to the festival this weekend? And like one person puts their hand up and I'm like, Mm. but why isn't everybody going? Mm. You know, here's a chance to hear other writers speak about their craft, which I always learn things from, and also a chance to, you know, sit in a crowd with other people who are clearly interested in books because otherwise they wouldn't be there, who you can meet like I did with Sarah Foster all those years ago. Um, You know, it's a, there are so many things about my uh, writing career as writing books and also the other opportunities, the other teaching and speaking opportunities that have come about solely because I've met somebody who has then been able to um, give me some kind of work in some kind of way, which is fantastic. So Mm. make connections, whether it be through social media, through face-to-face, through going to festivals, through going to author talks, be out there seeking out those connections because you never know. Obviously, you don't do it because you hope to get something out of it. You do it because you like meeting people and you like learning. But Mm. sometimes there are payoffs for it as well, which is fantastic. Mm. So that's number two. Okay. And number three is to write a lot. <laughs> I remember, <laughs> again, sitting in a session at the Perth Writers Festival hearing Kate Grenville talk about her book, The Secret River, and she said that she rewrote that book 23 times. Oh, stop. Really? I know. And I always tell my writing students this because, and their faces <laughs> literally go, you can see them go, white. <laughs> And, you know, that book wasn't Kate Grimble's first or second book. You know, she'd written five or six books by then, so she was by no means an amateur. But just knowing that you have to keep writing until the book is as good as you think it's possibly going to be. I'm working on the structural edit for book number four at the moment, and I reckon I have thrown out half of the book and I've written an entirely new half of the book. So you write a lot of stuff that will never get used, will never go anywhere, will literally just sit on your laptop and never be used. But you have to be happy to do that because you know that in doing that and getting that other stuff out, you find the gold and you get to the good stuff in the end. And, you know, we talked about blogging. That's why I blog too. It's another way of writing. So as many different ways of writing as you can possibly find to do, all of those things come together to help make you a better writer, I think. Fantastic. Those are very, very good top three tips. Thank you very much for that, Natasha Lester. And thank you very much for your time today, for we are at the end of our fabulous residence moment. Well, it was um, lovely talking to you, Al. Always, always good to chat. <laughs> yeah, we could just talk on for hours, could we? But let, we won't bore your listeners who probably don't want to listen to us yeah, anymore. Let's not bore them to death, shall we? All right. Well, thank you very much, and um, we shall. Um, best of luck with the new novel. Great. Thanks so much, Alison. Lovely talking to you. Love that interview, Al. Love her book as well. Awesome book. And we are also, if for people who are in Sydney who want to meet Natasha, we're having a meetup with Natasha on the 31st of May at the Australian mm. Writers' Centre in Sydney. So check out our website, writerscentre.com.au. Go to the section called Meetups and you have a chance to meet Natasha and ask her questions yourself. So let's, let's move on to our working writers' tip this week. We have an interesting question from Catherine. We do. Yes. Now, do you want to read it or will I read it? I'll read it but because you can answer it. <laughs> well, you, you do this to me. All right. 
Hit me with it. Catherine has said, I have just finished listening to a past podcast where you discuss the importance of putting yourself out there as a writer and doing away with secrecy. I live and work on a remote cattle station and this type of location is the setting for most of my writing. I want to start building a platform but I'm reluctant to put my name to my work just yet as I'm not sure how the people I work with will react. Part of this stems from the content of my writing. I'm interested in writing about the dynamics of small communities such as the one in which I work. But living in such a community is deterring me from coming out as a writer as I fear negative reactions, both of the who do you think you are kind and the general mocking variety. Do you or Valerie have any advice? I, yeah, yeah, but, you know, and that's basically the end of the question. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, Valerie and I have much to say on this subject as we do on all subjects. Okay, I think there's two things going on here and there's, I think we can address the you know, we'll address. I'm going to address the um, the fear of coming out as a writer yep. first. Okay. Um, you know, for fearing negative reactions, both of the "who do you think you are" kind and the general mocking variety. Well, you know what? I'm all about the "I don't care." <laughs> I think you need to think very, very carefully about how much you actually care about what other people think of what you're doing. You don't need to show them your work, but yep. telling people that you are a writer, owning that, mm. is one of the most important steps to becoming a writer. You have to be brave, you know, and if you can't be brave enough just to actually claim the title, Mm. um, it's very, very difficult to be honest on a page. So I think that the first thing you need to do is just be like, you know what, I don't actually care. People say, who do you think you are? Like, well, I'm a writer. Mm. I've been writing for a long time. I've been writing for whatever, you know, like believe in yourself and, and take that on board first. So think about that and doing that first. Um, I think you'll probably find that people will just be really, really interested because that's always been what I've found. Like it doesn't really matter who I talk to. And this is, you know, before I was published and all of those things as well, it's just like, oh, really? Wow. You know, it's a it's a wow thing as opposed to a don't be ridiculous, generally speaking. And if people tell you that you're ridiculous, you just go whatever and you keep doing it, you know, quietly to yourself. It's, I think that that's really, really important. So own that first. That would be my mm. first thing. Now, with regards to writing in a small community and writing about a small community, you do have to be careful. So you can do two things. You can take on a pseudonym and build your writer platform based on that pseudonym. Um, But I would suggest to you that if you are going to write about the sort of dynamics of a small, you know, community, et cetera, you need to make sure it's very, very different to the one that you live in. Mm. You really do. Or wait till you leave and then write about it. Yes. I, I found I did find this difficult myself because I came, I moved back to the South Coast, um, having lived in the city for a long time, and I had been sort of writing small town uh, community sort of stuff at that stage. Once I was back in the middle of that community, I found it actually I did find it harder, and I do understand where your um, where your doubts are coming from with this. It is more difficult because you want to be truly honest about the about the the feel of that community, and it's very hard to be truly honest about a community when you're in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've either got to write something very different to what you're actually living at the time. What you don't want is people coming up to you when the book comes out and going, that's me. Mm. You really don't want that. Mm. What do you think, Valerie? I agree. I think I just want to call Catherine out on something. Oh, and wait a minute. In, in the first instance, because the book's not out yet, mm. um, and in the first instance I think that Catherine is saying that she's just scared of what other people 
are going to think about the fact that she's decided to be a writer. And I think that what you said earlier, Al, Mm. is absolutely correct. You just need to own it, Catherine. Who cares what they Mm. think? And Mm. if you are scared about saying, I'm a writer because you don't have the confidence that, you can say, I'm whatever your current profession is and I'm currently writing in my spare time. Mm. Ease your, take, you know, baby steps and ease your way into it. Just start saying it to people. You know, you don't necessarily have to say, I'm an author, particularly if your book isn't out yet. But you can say, I am a physiotherapist or a cattle station manager or whatever it is, and I'm writing a novel in my spare time. Start saying that and see what people think. I mean, well, who cares what they think, to be honest? Don't worry about seeing what people think. Just say it. Own it. Um, I think that's really important because maybe – um, because what Catherine has said is she's she's fearing negative reactions like who do you think you are? I mean, seriously, who do you who do they who do they think they are? Who do they to, think they are to be even saying that to exactly. you? Exactly. <laughs> you, you know, but having said that, the reality is if you are scared of that, take baby steps and mm. you know, go the halfway approach until you're confident to do the full approach, Catherine. Yeah, and also with regards to building your platform, um, you know, you're reluctant to put your name to your work and stuff. Mm. As I said, think about a pseudonym or just start, you know, small. Set up a Twitter account and start with that or something like that. You know, it's if, if you're concerned about it, just start building your presence slowly. You don't necessarily have to go in hard with your author website right now if that worries you, mm. but set up some social media accounts because the chances of these people whoever these people are that might mock you, actually seeing you on Twitter doing this stuff are so small. And even if they do, you just go, I like to write. It's what I do in my spare time. It's all you need to do. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, All right, so let's move on to another tip this week because I wanted to mention it uh, because I was speaking to someone the other day and they were saying, they were kind of musing over the fact that there could be two people, two writers who are on social media and one of them, and they both post as frequently as each other. So it's not like one's, you know, hopeless and doesn't post at all and one's mm-hmm. really prolific. They're both equally um, frequent and yet one will get traction and will get a following and the other won't interesting right Mm. so what does it come down to Val what does it come down to well I think it's something that you once said to me Al Mm. which was social media amplifies your personality Mm. and if you have a warm and engaging or interesting personality that gets amplified but if you're the sort of person who all you do is complain about life or complain about how hard stuff is or about what the government is doing or you know constantly Mm. tweets bad news stories not that there's anything wrong with with that but you need to balance it out with good Mm. news stories um uh, then who wants to be around that person, right? Mm. Who wants to be around the negative energy, that negative energy? So if you are amplifying um, negative energy in your life and, and, you know, only focusing on stuff that you want to rant about, mm. then, yeah, that's there's something to be said about that, right? Absolutely. I think, yeah, like it, what, what you're wanting to do online is you want to be yourself, 
but you kind of want to be the best version of yourself that you have. And I think that it's important to think about what what is the best version of yourself and how do you want to present yourself. Um, it's like going to any party. You don't ne- you think about it like it's you don't just necessarily walk in and start ranting and carrying on and mm-hmm. how bad is this and my day was awful and blah blah yeah. blah. Not if you want to make friends. Yeah. And what you're trying to do online is make friends. And the other thing I think that you know. The, the people who sort of like find success with this, the other thing that they do is that they react and respond to what works for them in the mm-hmm. sense that if they put a post up that gets engagement on any level, they go, oh, well, that's that worked and they look for something similar. They look for something in the same vein. They keep, they sort of mine that vein a little bit and because it's obviously it's struck a chord with someone. If you strike a chord, you know, do it again. Look for yeah. that again. Um, don't sort of strike a chord and then immediately branch out into something completely different. Um, so, you you know, because that way you're going to start to see there'll be two or three subjects that you find that you post about or things that you do that your community will start to respond to and those are the things that you continue to do. Yeah, and stuff that, stuff that gets a zero engagement and mm-hmm. zero interest is probably not where you want to be spending your time. Yeah. So look for the things that work and do them again. <laughs> Uh, absolutely. And there are a lot of tips just like this in the course that Alison created, How to Build Your Author Platform, which mm. you can find out more at writerscenter.com.au slash platform. And there's literally step-by-step instructions on the kind of things that work and the kind of things that don't and the kind mm. of plan you need to put in place in order to build your author platform. So if you're interested in that, check it out. Mm. So... We're almost oh. at the end of our episode, Al. What, oh. what have you got coming up for, for yourself in the coming week? Oh, well, I've got some, um, well, I've got some exciting things. I'm, I've got a, this is my first full work week back after the holidays. So mm. I must, I'm the only person I know. I said to my husband last night, I'm so excited. I've got a full work week this week. And he just looked at me as if to go, really? <laughs> <laughs> That's what you want to say to me on a Sunday night? I said, well, you know, I guess, you know, I'm lucky. You know you're lucky when you're looking forward to a full work week, right? Yes. Okay, so um, so that's that's what I'm doing this week. But I've got a few things coming up. I'm actually going to be appearing at the Sydney Writers Festival's live and local program um, in Wollongong on the 23rd of May. Awesome. And I'll be doing a reading and uh, taking up some books to sign, et cetera. So um, if anyone's in that area on the 23rd of May at the Wollongong Town Hall, it's all very glamorous, um, then, you know, I'd love to see you. Uh, love to see you there. And um, in other news, the uh, full program has been announced for the Pro Blogger Training yes. Event uh, program in September. And I'm going to be presenting two sessions at that on the Gold Coast on September 9 and 10, which I'm really looking forward to. Um, I love, uh, you know, just being with all those bloggers, like four or 500 people who are all interested in, you know, in blogging and, yeah. Yeah, so I'll be doing a session on how to write a better blog and I'll be doing a session on getting paid to write. So it's going to be really fun. Brilliant. Yes, and it's always a fun event, the program. It is. It's so fun. The energy from it is just amazing. Like it's Mm. just, you know, so many excited people. Um, So I'll put a link in the show notes that, uh, that outlines all those details for you if anyone's interested in having a look. And what about you, Valerie? What are you doing? 
what am I doing? I am heading to Melbourne at the end of this week um, to do a bunch of different things. Uh, some listeners, I know there's some crossover listeners, some listeners will know that I co-host another podcast called So You Want to Be a Photographer, which uh, I co-host with Gina Militia. And one of the things we do is create a bunch of tutorials for uh, a gold community. And we will be doing quite a bit of that a lot of behind the scenes tutorials at a at a very high profile awards ceremony which some people might be familiar with in this country uh so yeah that's what I will be doing this week wow yeah fun very exciting very exciting I feel like we should have a crossover episode you know like how the arrow and the flash they sometimes have crossover episodes or sometimes on law and order svu and csi that sometimes have crossover episodes or like (laughs) if no one understands that then maybe once upon a time on melrose place in beverly hills 90210 i feel like we should have a crossover episode how do you think we'd manage that you think, like, are we going to do a three-way here? Oh, I don't know. We'll see. We'll, we'll figure something out. Go, Val. But anyway, uh, where do we find you online, Al? Uh, you'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, and you'll find me on Facebook at Alison Tate Writer. Brilliant. Uh, you'll find me on Twitter at Valerie Koo. That's K-H-O-O. Same address at Instagram. I'm easy to find on Facebook. Just Google, um, just, just search for me, Valerie Koo, and you'll see my picture. And, um, yeah, that's about it, really. Yeah, that's all she wrote. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, until we chat again next week, we look forward to an exciting, productive week, and we hope that you have one too. We do. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. <laughs>